Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. This is going to be the last episode before we head off to spring break, so we won't have anything next week, but in two weeks we will be back with another episode of the show. So today we're going to do something a little bit different. You know, more often than not, we talk about monarchs, generals, or just any other important figure in European history. But we're, we're going to do something a bit different this time, and we're going to talk about an idea, a thesis, rather than an actual individual. So this is going to be jumping all over the place in regards to time span. But, but it ties back into last episode. Now, last episode, we did Suleiman the Magnificent, and I mentioned a few times the Ottoman decline thesis. Now, some of you, if you know a bit more about Ottoman history, you've probably heard the Ottoman decline thesis thrown in every now and then. And it was, for a long time, one of the most prevalent lines of thought for many historians you know, in regards to the Ottoman Empire. But but as of late, it's been proven to not really be as accurate as it once thought thought to be. So I, I think today is a good time to really, considering we just discussed Suleiman the Magnificent, who uh, members, who followers of the Ottoman decline thesis say was like the apex of the Ottoman Empire and everything from there was a decline. So I feel like it's very fitting that we talk about this now, especially also since I mentioned it last episode and you may not have necessarily known what that was so you probably heard before that the ottomans were the sick man of europe right towards the end of the 20th century especially going into world war one they were losing territories in the balkans they were seen as corrupt inefficient having a weak military culturally divided and while that was definitely true going towards the end of you know the 20th century it was there was a theory that that was actually something that's been going on for a long time and that was really what the ottoman decline thesis was the idea that since suleiman the magnificent's reign the ottoman empire was just in straight up decline it was always weak always failing but you know and that's something that's been disputed since then but let's get right into it in regards to where this actually started to emerge from so the ottoman empire itself is actually the source of this original decline thesis so the first attribution to this came from you know ottoman intellectuals at the time Beginning earlier and around, but expanding really in the 17th century, there was the literary genre of nashetamne, or advice for the kings. This genre of writing had a long history, which had appeared way before the Ottoman Empire, uh, under the Seljuks and the Abbasids. Um, and this kind of literature was primarily concerned with order and disorder within the state and society. And it conceptualized the ruler as the embodiment of justice. And this was a really big detail for, you know, the Ottoman Sultan. He was seen as justice itself. And it was his duty to ensure that his subjects would receive that justice. And this was often expressed through the concept of the circle of justice. In this conception, the provision of justice by the ruler to his subjects allows the subjects to prosper, strengthening the ruler in turn. But should this break down, society would see to properly function. Thus, many Ottoman writings in, in this kind of genre, such as uh, 
those by Mustafa Ali, describe the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent as the most perfect manifestation of the system of justice and put forth the idea that the empire had since declined from that golden standard. These writers viewed the changes which the empire had undergone during, the recent during those times as, inherent as an inherently negative corruption of an idealized Suleimanic past. However, it's now recognized by most that rather than simply describing objective reality, uh, these writers were more often utilizing the genre of decline to voice their own personal complaints. For example, it's believed that Mustafa Ali's belief that the empire was declining was actually due, uh, was motivated by the fact that he wasn't able to achieve promotions and court patronage. And the primary goal of the Nashitame writers, then, may have actually been to simply protect their own personal or class status in a rapidly changing world at the time, and not actually reflective of how the state of the Ottoman Empire actually was. But the Ottoman decline thesis also emerged itself in Western Europe. And the notion of an all-encompassing Ottoman decline actually didn't enter Western histi historiography until the early 19th century with the works of historians such as Joseph von Hammer Pergstahl, who knew the Ottoman Turkish and adopted the idea directly from the Ottoman Natsusami writers. Uh, internal decline was thus thought of as an appropriate means of explaining the Ottomans' external military defects, as it was during the 19th century that the Ottomans, especially during the Crimean War, had to be carried by the British and the French in the war, and also lost some earlier wars against the Russians. And so this was really seen as a period of decline, hence why he focused on the Ottoman military uh, defeats. And he also acted as a justification for European imperialism, such as the British who forced the uh, Ottomans to sign the Treaty of Balitlama, which was a free trade agreement which really hampered Ottoman industrialization going all the way up until World War I. Um, the notion of the, of the decline in Ottoman Islamic civilization, as this was expanded to pretty much all of the Middle East as a whole, but not just the Ottoman Empire, was used as a foil for, Western, for defending the prosperity of Western civilization, in which the decadent Ottomans were contrasted with the dynamic West, Islam often came to be portrayed as the polar opposite of the West under this thesis, whereby Western societies valued freedom, rationality, and progress, while Islam valued civility, superstition, and stagnation. Such depictions were perpetrated in the mid-20th century above all by the works of H.A.R. Gibb and Harold Baldwin and Bernard Lewis, who adhered to the civilizational conception of Islamic decline while modifying it to the new sociological paradigm of the modernization theory, which is yet another thesis that's been... Um, talked about more recently. And these views came under criticism, though, in more recent uh, history, as historians began to re-examine the own, their own fundamental assumptions about Ottoman and Islamic history, particularly after the publication of Edward Said's Orientalism in 1978. So this whole way really do pit, you know, the Western world versus, you know, the Islamic world. There is a kind of dichotomy there that does exist. And a large part of that does actually result from the creation of this Ottoman decline thesis. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. For all of you just tuning back in, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're talking about the Ottoman decline thesis. Now, we just got done talking about the origins of the thesis, um, at least in more uh, non-contemporary times, so more so back after the reign of Suleiman and about the 19th century. So let's talk, though, about what some of these tenets were of the Ottoman decline thesis instead of just where it originated from. So one of the most prominent writers of the Ottoman decline thesis was the historian Bernard Lewis, who was a professor emeritus of the Near Eastern Studies at Princeton. 
Um, and he argued that the Ottoman Empire experienced all-encompassing decline affecting government, society, and civilization. And in a 1958 article called Some Reflections on the Decline of the Ottoman Empire, he developed into the mainstream opinion of the time uh, of mainly orient Orientalist scholars in the mid-20th century, um, this Ottoman decline thesis idea. However, the article is highly criticized and considered by many modern historians to not really be accurate. But Luce's views were essentially as follows. The first ten sultans of the Ottoman Empire, those being Osman I to Suleiman the Magnificent, were of excellent personal quality, while those who came after Suleiman were, without exception, quote, incompetents, degenerates, and misfits. End quote. As a result, all of the Kafe system of succession, whereby dynastic princes no longer gained experience in provincial government before coming to the throne. Um, so essentially at this time, you know, uh, there was for a long time the system where the Ottomans would send their sons off to go govern before they would actually assume the throne. But this system was eventually abolished. And upon which, you know, he argues that they didn't have the experience that was needed going on to the ascension to the throne, which led to... Uh, sultans who really lacked the administrative skills, the military skills, and the fiscal skills to really manage the large and multicultural Ottoman Empire. And it was this faulty leadership at the top which led to decay in all branches of government. The bureaucracy ceased to function effectively, the quality of their records worsened, the Ottoman military lost its strength and began to experience defeats on the battlefield, and they ceased to keep up with the advances of military European science, and consequently suffered territorial losses. And as the Ottoman state in society was geared towards constant expansion, since as we saw since the fall of Constantinople uh, in 1453, the, the Ottomans basically just beelined their way into, uh, into the Balkans, as we've seen under the reigns of John Hunyadi, uh, Methodius Corvinus, you know, the Ottomans were really doing the best they can to expand and almost got to Vienna with their expansions, but since then had been very far pushed back, pretty much into only the Balkans and even were losing territories within the Black Sea. So, you know, the Ottomans were basically reliant upon expansion, and when, you know, this expansion slowed down, he argued, the Ottomans really started to see a decline. And this sudden failure to achieve new conquests left the empire unable to adapt to its new relationship with Europe. For once Europe was fearful of the Ottomans due to their military might, the inability of the Ottomans to really, as he says it, West modernize and expand their army and really keep it up to date really caused them to be seen more as the sick man of Europe rather than an actual powerhouse and a real superpower in Europe. Economically as well, the empire was undermined by the discovery of the New World and the subsequent shift in the economic balance between the Mediterranean and Atlantic Europe. And Atlantic Europe as well as voyages of discovery which brought Europeans to India and led to a decline in the volume of trade passing through Ottoman ports. Before uh, the Cape of Good Hope was discovered by the Portuguese, a lot of goods to India traveled through the Ottoman Empire's territory to actually reach India. But now that that was no longer doable, that was able to be avoided, the Ottomans really saw a decrease in their total revenues. In addition, the price revolution led to the destabilization of Ottoman coinage and a severe fiscal crisis, which proved disastrous when paired with the rapidly rising costs of warfare. As the cavalry army of the Ottomans also became obsolete, the Timar system of land tenure, which had sustained it, fell into obsolescence, while the corrupt bureaucracy was unable to replace it with an actually functioning alternative. Instead, tax farming was introduced, leading to even more corruption and the oppression of the peasantry and agricultural decline overall. The Ottoman economic and military backwardness was extenuated by their closed-mindedness and unwillingness to actually adopt European in innovations, as well as an increasing disdain for practical silence. Ultimately, the Ottoman Empire, quote, reverted to a medieval state with a medieval mentality and a medieval economy, but with the added burden of a bureaucracy and a standing army which no medieval state ever had to bear, end quote. 
Significantly, explanations out of Mr. Clymer are not limited to the empire's geo- geopolitical position among the world's empires or, its, or to its military strength. The Ottoman thesis was rooted mainly in the 19th and early 20th conception of distinct civilizations as units of historical analysis, and thus explained Ottoman weaknesses with reference not only to its geopolitics, but also defined in its social, economic, cultural, and moral means. Uh, this is an all-compassing notion of the decline of the Ottoman civilization became the framework with which Ottoman history from the 16th century onwards was understood. So Bernard, in his writings, really focuses on the defeats of, you know, the Ottomans, the, the real failures. But a lot of the critiques against that are really going to arise from the fact that he's really viewing this in, in one way, that he's seeing the Ottomans as just a declining empire and thus is overemphasizing the weaknesses of the Ottoman Empire while not recognizing the strength and the steps that the Ottomans actually took to, you know, resolve these crises. So, so let's get into what these critiques of the thesis actually are. Now, there's a few conceptual issues that are arising with this. Danasaji, in an article summarizing the critiques of the Klein thesis, um, since the 70s, identified the following as the main points that scholars have demonstrated. Quote, one, the changing nature and adaptability of the Ottoman state and society. Two, indigenous or internal social, economic, and or intellectual processes display inside the modernity prior to the advent of the West. Three, the comparity of the Ottoman state and society with their counterparts in the world in the same period. And four, a logic or a framework alternative to decline and the Eurocentrism implied therein that takes into account the phenomenon of the 17th to 18th centuries, end quote. Now, these first two points pertain to the decline thesis' depiction of the Ottoman state and society as being backward, static, and incapable of innovation prior to the impact of the West. Um, and the third concerns the degree to which the Ottoman Empire was taken to be totally unique, operating according to its own rules and internal logic, rather than being integrated into a wider comparative framework of world history. While the fourth addresses the degree to which the decline thesis overlooked the local processes actually occurring in the Ottoman Empire during the 17th and 18th centuries, in favor of an emphasis on the grand narrative of Ottoman decay and European superiority, essentially saying that the thesis as a whole takes the decline of the Ottoman Empire since we want since that is the period in which the Ottomans' conquest stopped and their territories began to recede. And they just overemphasize that, you know, emphasizing the problems, the fiscal and military defeats, even though there's a lot of, uh, you know, good things that the Ottoman Empire did in order to counter those. But those aren't really being addressed as the argument in the same light as they should, and they're being de-emphasized by historians such as Bernard. In line with these points, a common, another common criticism of the decline thesis is that it is teleological, meaning that it presents all of Ottoman history as a story of the rise and fall of the empire, as I said, causing early historians to overemphasize the empire's troubles and underemphasizing its strengths. And according to Linda Darling, quote, because we know that eventually the Ottomans became weaker and finally disappeared, every earlier difficulty they experienced becomes, quote, a seed of decline, and Ottoman successes and sources of strength vanish from the record, end quote. The corollary of the decline is the notion, essentially, that the empire had reached a peak, and this had been prob- problematized. The reign of Suleiman the Magnificent was seen by pretty much everyone, even contemporaries at the time, as the golden age to which all of the rest of the empire's history was to be compared. Because it was under Suleiman that the Ottomans really reached their peak of economic, cultural, and military strength. And such comparisons caused early researchers to see transformation and change as an inherently negative idea, as the empire shifted away from established norms of Suleiman's romanticized and idealized 
age, which it really was, especially within Ottoman culture. And according to Jane Hathaway, this focus on the Golden Age had a distorting effect on its history. And quote, a massive empire that lasted for over six centuries cannot have had an ideal moment and an ideal promuptuation by which the entire chronological and geographical span of the empire can be judged, end quote. Instead, a lot of modern scholars take change within the Ottoman Empire to be a natural result of, the ad- of their adaptation to the world around it, a sign of innovativeness and flexibility rather than one of inflexibility, stagnation, and overall decline. If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. For all of you just tuning in to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, welcome back. Uh, we just got done discussing some of the earlier tenets of the Ottoman decline thesis, and now we're going to get into the really political criticisms from modern historians about the decline thesis. So in re-examining the idea that the Ottomans failed politically, and ma- which was mainly the result of the Nasiya Hatanami te- text, many scholars, among the most notably Douglas Howard and Rifat Ali Abu al-Hajj, have pointed out these Ottoman critiques were, basically, were not unbiased. As we mentioned earlier or whatnot, these people were often motivated by the fact that they were not given patronage by the court, or that they were disgruntled by something the sultans did. So as a result, these historians say that these writings should not even at all be considered as uh, evidence by historians such as Bernard in writing and talking about the Ottoman Empire and its decline. Thus, that entire argument of the thesis is invalid. But they also go against the notion that the sultans all after Suleiman were terrible. They say that it's unfair to judge each and every sultan to Suleiman, given that each and every sultan faced different challenges and different crises. They think it's a lot more you know, pertinent and a lot more fair and a lot more accurate if they were to judge each of the sultans in their own contemporary time periods. Because the sultan who had to deal with the crises of, uh, let's say, like World War I, which you know, ultimately did result in the Ottoman Empire, is a very different scenario than Suleiman the Magnificent, who merely was not facing such a total war scenario and the possible end of the empire, but was really, you know using the Ottoman Empire at its prime. So they really go against this notion of the Suleimanic Golden Age, and they really don't think that should be used as a standard to judge all Ottoman sultans. So now let's move into the military aspects of, you know, why the Ottomans were considered in decline. So obviously one of the most uh, enduring claims of the decline thesis was the weakness of the military after the Suleimanic period. The Janissaries, which were the really feared uh, unit of the Ottoman Empire, of the empire, uh, supposedly became corrupted as they increasingly earned privileges, gained the right to marry, sire children, enrolled these children in the chorus, and rather than maintaining strict discipline, began to take up professions such as merchants and shopkeepers to supplement their incomes, thus losing their military edge. But it's now understood that Janissary participation in the economy was not limited to only the post-Sulemonic period. They were doing this in the 15th century without any apparent impact on military discipline. And rather than being military ineffective, the Janissaries remained one of the most innovative forces in Europe, introducing the tactic of volley fire, perhaps even earlier than most of the European armies. And the Timur system also saw, you know, a lot of uh, criticism. And the breakdown of this was seen as a result of incompetent administration. Um, you know, it was the army of cavalry which relied upon this Timur system in order to, you know, actually function. And, you know, it was becoming obsolete towards the end of the 17th century, though. And the transformation from this allowed the Ottomans to instead raise large armies and musket-wielding infantry, thereby maintaining their military competitiveness rather than it being a sign of, you know, a breakdown of the bureaucracy and an incompetency. It was actually a benefit. As by the 1690s, sorry, the proportion of infantry in the Ottoman Empire had risen to 50 to 60 percent 
equivalent to their Habsburg rivals. And in terms of armament, the Ottomans remain roughly equivalent with the with their European rivals. And a theory that Ottoman cannon, especially for all of you just tuning in, welcome back to for Augustin. And despite the Orionistic claim that an inherent conservatism in Islam prevented them from adopting mil European military innovations, it's now known that the Ottomans are actually really receptive to foreign techniques and inventions, and continue to employ European renegades and technical experts throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. And in terms of productive capacity, the Ottomans were even able to surpass their European rivals during the 17th century, and they always maintained full self-sufficiency self in gunpowder production, and were always usually able to produce enough cannon and muskets to supply an entire armed force as well as surpluses and thus it is now believed by many modern historians that the ottoman military was able to maintain rough parity with its rivals until the 1760s falling behind as a consequence of actually a long period of peace on its western front rather than it being one of stagnation so a lack of warfare for the ottomans led to them not having the need uh necessarily to adapt as usually in history uh rapid changes usually only occur after times of war and conflict now, in regards to the finances of the Ottoman Empire, the price revolution caused deficits, increasing armies caused deficits, and the lack of industrialization and overall poverty, as proclaimed by the Ottoman decline thesis, you know, was another issue as why the Ottoman Empire was declining. But, you know, many believe, modern historians say, that the Ottoman Empire, well, like a lot of other European states, still struggled to, they admit that they did struggle to, you know, meet rapidly rising expenditures. But they say, at the end of it all, they were actually able to institute reforms, which allowed them to enter the 18th century with a budget surplus. And Linda Darwin says, quote, ascribing 17th century Ottoman budgetary deficits to the decline of the empire leaves unexplained the actual cessation of these deficits in the 18th century. So the Ottoman decline thesis is probably in history one of the most important because it really as a whole reflected Ottoman history. And it really was the first attempt to really make such a wide viewpoint of the Ottoman Empire. And while it has been, you know, largely debunked historically, it's still in the minds of many popular historians, those who, you know, usually just write books and aren't necessarily professors in them themselves. Why do we use this theory in their novels? So, you know, while it's while it's disproven and whatnot today, it's still an incredibly important theory to know, especially if you're reading any text about the Ottoman Empire. So thank you for joining us for another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Join us in two weeks as we return to discover yet another individual from our past. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss, so be sure to join us same time, same place, next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.